0: Hello Hoopaholics, it's Coach Spins here from the Boxing One podcast. Episode 32, we are sitting here on the eve of the NBA draft early, uh, excuse me, early entrant withdrawal deadline. And with that, a lot of NBA draft thoughts, some quick NBA finals preview that we're going to get to, and a mailbag Q&A from you guys, our favorite listeners out on Twitter. Thank you all. For joining us here on the Box and One Pod, we hope that uh, you're excited that the calendar is turning to June now, and and that's the best time of the year for NBA draft heads. It's it's when everything happens when the rubber meets the road. We're only uh, about four weeks away now from the 2022 NBA draft. So what we thought would be great to do tonight is again look a little bit at the NBA finals because not just is that the, the biggest part of you know, the basketball season, but it's what every team and roster really builds for and towards. So when we look at the NBA finals, we need to enjoy the, the moments when we're here. And as a lifelong Boston Celtics fan, being able to finally see them play against the Golden State Warriors, I, I'm thrilled for it with all the, the stakes on the line. Um, it's it's going to be a really good series. So I want to preview that a little bit because too often us NBA draft folks, we kind of overlook that side of things like enjoy the premium product that we get during this June time of the year in looking at the championships. Uh, another part of this too, as we mentioned, roster construction, what lessons can we take away from how golden state, how Boston both got to this point, the, the types of teams that they beat on their way, what does it show about what really works and what doesn't work for the postseason? Because I think what we all need at this time of year, and, and I said it to Sam Vicini on a podcast with him last week. Like, it's great to have the draft coming right on the heels of the playoffs because you end up valuing what is going to translate to success in the postseason, and that's what's most important. So, a quick NBA Finals kind of rundown on some some of those topics. We'll talk a little bit about the decisions of the guys that are uh, either staying in the draft or withdrawing and going back to college. So. We won't go into a ton of depth on each particular prospect, uh, maybe a a quick minute or two on each guy, but there are a few that as of the time of this recording, we are still waiting on Trevor Keels, Musa Diabate, Caleb Houston. I'd say Jalen Wilson from Kansas is also an intriguing one to see what he decides to do. Uh, A ton of other names out there. I know Leonard Miller came today and and said, he's not going to go back to college route, but he might go either stay in this draft or uh, explore the G League Ignite for another season. So some decisions there, and then we'll get to our mailbag and, and some, some pretty good questions centering around the top of the draft class, but a couple philosophical ones, one or two about a, a sleeper or more of a second round guy. So a couple of really good questions on there. We can't wait to shout you out on that. But as we always get going here, uh, make sure if you haven't already, find us on YouTube. Subscribe to our channel. Find us on Substack at theboxinone.substack.com A ton of uh, draft content coming out over the next few weeks. We are kind of preloading our, our draft content through the month of June. Uh, a lot of it is going to be this evergreen work that we can just quickly go on and hit publish. We actually have about 90% of our final big board written. We have quite a bit. In terms of other draft content uh, that will be coming out, articles, deep dives, analytics, different ways of thinking about the draft, but things that uh, that we can just hit publish on whenever. And the big reason for that, uh, I'm taking about a two week hiatus in early June, right? What more convenient time could I have picked? Uh, but life is happening here on my end. I've got uh, some marital things to, to attend to. A really exciting time personally, but because of that, I will be a little bit less frequently in the draft space. So. Before we go, wanted to make sure we got at least one more mailbag episode podcast in there to engage all of you guys. All right, <clears throat> let's dive in with the NBA finals here. Boston Celtics vanquished the Miami Heat in seven games, and they look pretty banged up to me, uh, really gassed in, in just the final two or three minutes of that Miami Heat game seven, where they almost came apart, which was a, a disaster waiting to happen. And, A lot of thoughts about Ime Udoka's decision-making with timeout usage, challenging the Grant Williams foul down the stretch in that game. But they made it through. There's a lot of guys that are banged up. We know Tatum has dealt with his shoulder. Robert Williams is in and out of the lineup. Smart's ankles pop every game or two. I think Jalen Brown is more hurt than he lets on. There's a lot. Going on with that group, like Grant Williams has probably played the most physical postseason of any role player in recent memory. Like he is always on the floor and or just chucking around the most physical guys on the other team. So I think there's there's a lot of fatigue on that Boston team right now in ways that Golden State, having that extra couple of days of rest and the experience on their side, a, a bunch of their best players not logging a ton of minutes over the last two seasons. They're going to be a little bit fresher. Combining that with experience is going to be really hard for the Celtics to get past. And, and you know, I write for Celtics blog. Uh, We have some roundtable discussions and and different things that we we go back and forth on on our Slack channel and, and ways that we communicate about the Celtics. And one of the questions we have coming up with the series is who's going to be the X factor for the Boston Celtics? I think it's Jason Tatum. And a lot of times when we think of X factors, we try to go more towards the margins, right? Like the superstars are always the obvious ones. If they play well, their team wins. If they go superhuman, their team has a much better chance of winning. I don't think the Celtics role players are the ones that really are going to have to shoulder the heavy load in order to beat Golden State, right? Tatum, his inconsistency over the last two weeks, two and a half weeks against Miami and Milwaukee has been notable. There are some games when he's Herculean and he has superstar efforts. There's others when he just disappears for stretches of time, and we're we're worried about him a little bit. Um, you know, I think Golden State has two really good individual defenders they can throw at him with Andrew Wiggins and Clay Thompson in different stretches. I think Draymond will be able to get with him in in, in some regards, but because both teams run switching defenses, I I think of matchups less in terms of who guards, who one-on-one and more, who's going to have to be the person that beats the switch that starts the scramble from the defense that is making those high IQ plays with the ball in their hands. And I keep going back to Tatum for Boston. Um, If he's not efficiently shooting the basketball then what's going to happen is kind of two things. One, the Celtics are going to have more empty opportunities and really struggle to generate points against Golden State's great half-court defense. The other thing we're going to get are Tatum's long shots and, and long misses having long rebounds. And Golden State scares me as a Celtics fan in transition in the open floor. I think the Celtics' shot selection has to be pristine, and they may have to... Settle for maybe one or two fewer jump shots than they have over the last couple series. I, I am such an analytics guy that I, I tend not to hate on chucking up a ton of three pointers, particularly around a superstar like Tatum and, and a really good slasher like Brown. But the long shots that don't go in are going to really create opportunities for Golden State to exploit. Um, so the the transition stuff worries me. And defensively, this is a different challenge for the Boston Celtics. Uh, we had it in our notes here, and then we're actually listening to the um, the the podcast, the Dunker Spot there with Nakias and, and Steve Jones. Great guys. Shout out, Nakias. Shout out, Steve Jones. Uh, this is a, a different type of offense that Boston is facing in Golden State. The last couple series, there have been one or two superstars that they can load up on. Brooklyn in Milwaukee they had Kevin Durant and Giannis and Antetokounmpo and their teams didn't move really well around those guys um, Brooklyn was missing a lot of three point shooting in that series Joe Harris was out i mean just a, a lot of a lot of differences in how they typically would look at spacing the floor around Kevin Durant and Milwaukee struggled to shoot the three i think ultimately that was the the difference in that bucks series for Boston was Milwaukee just couldn't hit enough shots when, when they were dared to, and Boston hit those. Um, Miami was a little bit more of a movement-based team, and Boston switching took them out of it a little bit. But at the end of the day, it turned into a Jimmy Butler, Bam bio, go one-on-one, and push tempo in transition. So this Golden State offense is a different type of puzzle to solve because you can't send too many guys on the Curry or Poole or Thompson darting around screens that's where everybody else gets open at the basket. And what's really going to challenge me if we're talking X factors again, guys that are less of the star types, Andrew Wiggins is averaging like three and a half offensive rebounds a game over his last 10 playoff games. It's absurd. This guy's energy has been on a different level and with so much attention to the shooters and the screens and, and the way that they, they move without the ball in their hands. Wiggins coming in at the end of that play to, crash the offensive glass, slash to the basket, just do all of that explosive finishing at the rim. He's going to be a difficult matchup for Boston. And what I fear is with all of the switching, he gets smaller guys on him, Looney gets smaller guys on him, and Golden State just has a field day on the on the glass. So um, I'm picking Golden State in the series. I think they've got enough shooters to survive the cold night from one guy. I think that they're just... Again, the experience, the rest, the superstar savvy. And um, and, they, and they just, they're so good when they're on. They're so, so, so good. So what does this mean or this NBA Finals reveal about roster construction? I mean, for years, we were talking about finding the next Draymond Green, right? That experienced, high IQ role player who's great on defense, but just makes your offense pop because he has feel. He has an understanding of how to get, his teammates shots. This year, the buzzword seems to be the next Grant Williams, right? That catch and shoot guy who's reliable in a spot-up role, has enough IQ to attack closeouts or create in small options, but is a very good catch and shoot guy who can guard anywhere in the lineup. You can play small, you can play big with him. He chucks different guys around one-on-one situations and is incredibly, incredibly smart. Role players make these finals teams pop. Um, you know, the Derek White trade at midseason changed a lot for the Celtics because it gave them another perimeter defender who's long enough to be switchable in some regards, but can chase around those quicker guys. I think that was missing when they decided to move on from the Kyries and IDs and Kemba's. They got a little bit big and chasing around smaller guys off screens is important. I think White has a huge role to play in this series against Stephen Curry. I think Robert Williams hitting and turning into such a reliable defender when he's healthy has been huge for Boston all season long, because it gives them backline protection to be more aggressive with their switches against a lot of star players, you know, likewise for golden state fantastic article that came out today in the athletic on rebounding and the work that Kevon Looney had done with their assistant coach to really emulate a lot of Dennis Rodman's, uh, ideas and, and teachings about rebounding and, and how to track down balls as they leave shooters hands. Not once they hit the rim, you know, that difference has made Looney a, a, such a, a valuable role player. What golden state does to put younger guys in their lineup, like Moses Moody, like Jonathan Kaminga, where they can just play smaller roles right out of the gate and, and have an impact is huge. Uh, the synergy from both teams for me, is switchable defense high iq defense that can blend can bend and has flexion based on whatever team they play they can pressure on the perimeter against smaller guys they can use their length and physicality to overwhelm but they're really really high iq with how they rotate so if there's a takeaway for me it's high iq defenders make the floor during this this time of the year um Yeah, I think the traditional model of finding three pillars still applies to both of these teams. For Golden State, it's Steph, it's Clay, it's Draymond. Now they happen to have two, you know, an all-star in Andrew Wiggins and a guy who's could average 20, 25 a night anytime he wanted to and Jordan Poole filling out the margins of that. Their talent level is absolutely absurd. Boston has Tatum, they have Brown, and their third identity is just Length and toughness defensively. There's no one, one guy who fits into that pillar, but collectively they all do. Al Horford, Marcus Smart, Robert Williams, Grant Williams, and everybody that plays has that type of, of toughness that allows their defense to be the third pillar of their team around Tatum and Brown. So uh, I still believe in that model. I think both of these teams are proof that The patient way of trying to build that up is is how you go through it. I mean, look, the Warriors, they toggled around with the KD sign and trade, turning that into the Angelo Russell, turning that into Andrew Wiggins and and picks. I I think that I really applaud Golden State for hanging on to some younger guys and talent, like Kaminga and Moody, for investing in Jordan Poole and allowing him to turn into the player that he has and striking gold there for what they've gotten out of Gary Payton, for what they've gotten out of Kavon Looney, for you know the reclamation signing and a guy like Otto Porter Jr., who has been a solid role player for them. They haven't shaken up the core. And instead of just added younger guys and the right veterans around it to make things really work. And likewise for Boston, I mean, we knew Al Horford fit they did some cap gymnastics and trading some, some pieces around the offload Kemba Walker in order to get Horford back, but they went all in on being bigger. They've rewarded their team by staying with smart, staying with the, the Smith excuse me, the, uh, the Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum pairing really, really important drafted and developed the two Williams guys in the front court drafted Peyton Pritchard as a, a role player who can come in during some of those roles. Patience is the way to build an NBA team. And that's the lesson that I take away from looking at these. Yes, defensive IQ matters. Finding your star players is always going to be important to get to this level. But the patience of both front offices to build this way, know that their plan is going to work and see it through. Uh, it's the it's reason why both of these teams are here right now. They don't get impatient and blow things up or hit a panic button if something doesn't go their way for a year or two. And, and that's been, as a Celtics fan, a huge inspiration to me, but uh, quite the the NBA finals coming up here. Really curious to see how they match up stylistically and if Boston's length can can bother them at all. All right, folks, stay or go decisions. It's time to, to talk about some of the, the more intriguing news that's come out over the last you know three or four days here, I think, all the way back to Memorial Day weekend. A lot of us tend to step aside from draft coverage Go out and enjoy the the nice weather for you know those of you in the northern parts of the country for the first time of the the season and of the year. And there have been a lot of intriguing decisions made over the weekend. Uh, one of the first ones that came out was Jalen Williams from Arkansas deciding to stay in the draft. I had a conversation today with uh, one NBA draft scout and one other um, you know writer who who covers the NBA draft for some prolific sites and. None of us can really figure out how Jalen Williams projects to the next level. We like his game in terms of the fact that he's a big, high-field guy who is impactful defensively. But the rim protection isn't quite what you get in the NBA. Solid rebounder, solid active defender, really good positionally. I don't know if he has the burst, the athleticism, the, the vertical pop. To impact shots at the rim from the most athletic guys in the NBA. Now he does have something that makes up for it. He's an unbelievable charge taker. Um, I I'm not a I, I struggle to know what a charge is, so it's really hard for me to value that because I think the the block charge is just so egregiously officiated and and not explained well enough that. I, I struggle drafting a player whose defensive impact is really going to be placed in the hands of a referee in some regard. So uh, Williams on the defensive end, definitely impactful. But the translatability from college to the NBA is not something that I'm, I'm sold on right now. That said, in, check back in 48 hours or in a couple of days because we're going to be wrapping up our video scouting report on Jalen uh, this is Jalen Williams from Arkansas, by the way. I, I probably should have specified that at the beginning. There are two Jalen Williams in this draft cycle. Uh, this is the Arkansas guy who made the decision to stay in, and I think part of it was influenced by the depth of the roster that you know, the must Bus has loaded in Arkansas right now. Uh, they're really, really talented next year, and Williams saw how well he played, the run that they made to the Elite Eight, and probably realized this was the time for, for him to get out capitalize on his draft stock. I don't think he's a first-round talent. Uh, I do think that he's going to be somebody that is high on people's boards in the second round and comes off somewhere in the 30s. Uh, Offensively, really good playmaker, good feel. Like There is a chance that we're overthinking this thing and his combination of traits and IQ makes him the next type of Al Horford guy. But there's also the chance that He's just not athletic enough to do what he does in the league, and because he doesn't shoot the ball cleanly enough from three right now, he's a little bit more on the outside of board. So Jalen Williams from Arkansas staying in this year's draft. I think a wise decision, but still not a first-round guy. Uh, next up, Harrison Ingram from Stanford made the decision to go back to school, to go back to Stanford, continue working on his game. I think uh, you know, after going through the process, if the feedback that he gets from NBA teams is that he's not going to receive a top 30 selection, it was the right call. He definitely struggled to shoot the ball down the stretch of the year. There was a, a time in mid to late January that we were starting to get in on Harrison Ingram as a first round guy. And then the wheels fell off shooting wise, at the final stretch of the season, six, eight stronger bodied wings with great feel, good touch as a passer the ability to operate both in the post and out of the pick and roll, they're versatile wings to have. I I think Ingram has to turn himself into a really good defensive stopper to be an effective NBA player or knock down shots at a consistent level. So another year at Stanford to develop. Hopefully the, you know, the the PAC 12 um, allows him to take that step forward and lead Stanford to winning more basketball games. I think that'll definitely help him but not a terrible decision by Ingram to go back either. Uh, He was right on the fringe of being a first-round guy for us. Isaiah Mobley from USC, let's stay in the Pac-12 for a second. He's staying in the draft, uh, more of a second-round guy. Uh, Really think that there is no reason for him to go back to USC. He's older for his grade. He's accomplished a lot there. The Trojans lose a ton on the transfer portal and transfer market uh i just thought it, it was a no-brainer for him to stay in this draft even if he's not receiving a ton of top, top 35 interest so uh, we like mobley a lot big mobile high field foreman who can shoot the ball and, and i think is going to do damage in the right system that's going to allow him to rebound and run and put him next to a good rim protector all right we got to some Two interesting guys here today on the 31st. Uh, Terquavion Smith was the first one to to make news earlier in in the mid-morning period of the day, Eastern time. Decided to go back to NC State. And this one really puzzled me at first. Uh, Thought he played well enough at the combine and had his stock going in the right direction that he would be a top 20 guy. You know, he had kind of said all along that if he didn't get assurances to go in a draft range that he felt comfortable, he would he would head back to to NC State. And it seems like going higher than maybe a top 20 guy is what he's aiming for. Loyalty is the name of the game for Turquavion. He committed to NC State when he was young and did not allow anyone else to recruit him as he kind of blew up. Uh, ended up having a really good finish to the year. think over his final 11 games he averaged about 20 points and was taking nine threes a game shooting 39 percent from three just tore it up scoring wise and that was on display at the combine at a time when so many guys shut it down and didn't play i thought terquavion was going to be this year's bones highland that one guy who's competitive enough and bets on himself plays well in the combine scrimmages that he vaults himself into pretty safely first round territory I guess that wasn't comforting enough for Turquavian. He wanted another year back at NC State, and great for him for making that decision and going and doing it. I just hope that he performs as well next year as he has over the last two or three months leading into the close of this draft cycle because next year's draft class is going to be very challenging to break into the lottery on. Anytime he takes a slight step back, it's not saying, well, he didn't rise up, he's going to be drafted in the same kind of spot. Uh, We had him, I think, 19th on our board when he made the decision to withdraw. It's more so the competition is heavier next year. Is he really doing that much to separate himself uh, and and get better? So uh, applaud him for betting that it's going to happen and love when guys go back to school and and learn a new hold, as good old JR would say. But I was definitely surprised initially by Dirk Quavion's decision. The last one. Dalen Terry made his decision about an hour before we started recording this podcast, and he is staying in this year's draft. Uh, heard from his father about a month ago that Dalen basically said if he's going to get a first round selection, he's going to stay in this draft. If he doesn't feel comfortable in that range, he will withdraw. I think the dominoes of Harrison Ingram, of Turquavion, of the uncertainty of Leonard Miller's decision. And just getting a feel for where this class was as a whole after going through the combine really helped Terry feel solid to be a first round selection. So as the dust has settled over the last couple of weeks from the combine, it makes a ton of sense that Terry would stay in and be a first round selection. Um, so of the guys that are staying in, Dalen Terry, Jalen Williams, Isaiah Mobley, big decisions, Turquay Vion and Harrison Ingram back to school. Still waiting to hear from Trevor Keels from Duke, Musa Diabate, and Caleb Houston from Michigan, and Jalen Wilson from Kansas. For what it's worth, I do think Caleb Houston is going to stay. I think that he is probably a 25 to 35 overall range type of guy. I'm not sure what the other three are going to do. So um, not necessarily intel, but kind of a hunch that we have piecing together a lot of what we've heard from various sources out there. You guys ready for some mail time? Mail time, mail time—our favorite part of the day. Let's scroll down here and see what we've got. Sorry, I'm having trouble. He- and Siri chimes in with the first question of the day, saying she's having trouble hearing. I think that means it's time to ditch the Apple Watch. All right, questions here in the mailbag. Simon Rath. good, good dude. Simon, what's up, my friend? Who in this class outside of your lottery do you think has the best chance at being a number one or number two scorer on a title team? It's an interesting question. Uh, my lottery. Uh, I mean, I have Jaden Hardy as a top 10 guy on my board. I would take him in the top 10. So, I mean, I would say him because he's mocked outside of the lottery in a lot of different circumstances, but a guy that I don't have as a top 14 pick that could be a number one or two scorer on a title team. I'll go Jalen Williams from Santa Clara, the Santa Clara guy, not the Arkansas one, the Santa Clara one. There's, there's just something about those mid-major don't bet against me guys, those high field guards who grow in college. And and as Jalen has, end up having a seven foot wingspan. He flashed really solid three level scoring this year at Santa Clara, good decision maker and passer with the ball in his hand. So He's not just a black hole in that regard. Pace hostage dribbles out of the pick and roll, smooth mid-range pull-up, the right combination between slow down physical play and explosiveness attacking gaps when they're open. And if the pull-up jumper from three is as real as I hope it is, he can play with the ball in his hands and be a a top two option for an NBA team. He's got got to get a lot better at attacking good athletes and claiming space in some of those regards. But- I'm a, I'm turning into a bigger believer in Jalen Williams as the days goes on. So good question, Simon, but uh, yeah, I'm going with, with Williams from, from Santa Clara. All right. Lucas Andrade is Dyson is the Dyson Daniels climb really justified? You know, it's, it's hard to say from, from the outside perspective from our vantage point here, like a lot of what I hear are Intel from other people. So secondhand sources trying to pass things on to me really hard to just blindly trust that myself and say that it's justified, or I agree with the Ascension. I've had Daniels in the nine to 14 range for the better part of this draft cycle. The climb that Lucas is referring to in his question is putting him more in the five to six range. Um, if the shooting is legit, and we, we do like his catch-and-shoot stroke, we think it's going to be fine, then, yeah, I, I think the, the climb is definitely justified. But from our vantage point, it's just hard to really buy into that. We weren't at the pro day. We've seen clips, but I'm not, I'm not putting a lot of stock and changing the feel that I've spent through watching actual game tape into a minute-and-a-half clip that goes out there on Twitter from an agent-organized pro day that's meant to make the prospect look good. It, that doesn't change a ton for me. Uh, so I don't see him breaking into the top seven or eight. I think right now he's at 10 on the latest iteration of our big board. and As, as we're working on the the final version to go out in the next couple of weeks, he'll stay in that range. Um, but I do like Ben Matherin and Jaden Hardy more as prospects. I don't think Dyson is going to climb them, uh, climb in front of them on our board, but a really fascinating, last month here for Daniels and curious to see how he, where he ends up and then how he turns out as a result. And Sergio is asking a question about the Indiana Pacers here. Who's the best fit for the Pacers sixth overall? Uh, I'll give you two names. Keegan Murray, I think would be an awesome fit here because high level role player best as a third option in the NBA, but gives them the versatility to go for whoever they think is going to be best player available in the future doesn't tie them down to any particular play style and can contribute a little bit right away. If they want to go for it a little bit more with Rick Carlisle as their head coach, knowing that uh, he's probably not going to want to stick out a super long rebuilding process. The other name I'll give there is Shaden Sharp. Um, I wouldn't pass on him in the top six. I just think the upside is fantastic. And again, Indiana, they have the roster flexibility right now to decide to be patient. And if they make that decision, I think Sharp is the right guy for them to target at six if he's still available. Just really, really high level superstar upside. There was a, a question in here on Shaden Sharp. I'm going to jump down to that now. Let me see if I can find it here. There it is. Uh, six foot three, Doctor M.D. All right, a little Doctor Seussish rhyme there from Doctor M.D. Uh, can you describe Shaden Sharp? I've never seen him play besides YouTube videos. Want to get a better feel for. Actual game film? Great question here. So, um, we've seen four full games on Shade and Sharp. It's not a ton. And it's certainly not a lot for us to feel comfortable enough um, to put our livelihood on the line in an eval that we would make on Sharp. I would need more time and more access to film in order to get that done. Most of what we've seen is high school and not necessarily AAU. I think one AAU game and the rest were. High school contests. Um, super imposing athletically, especially in the open floor. Bouncy as hell when he has a runway. Yeah, a little bit of a qualifying statement there because I think he has a subpar first step. Uh, he's got length, the, the tools, and we talked about the athleticism, like he can improve his first step a little bit, but from what we saw in AAU in, and in high school, it's nowhere near where it needs to be. The shot is very smooth looking. He's confident from deep range. Uh, I I think that there's two level potential where he's great at the rim and really good from three, not quite sure about the mid range. It's not something that we've seen a ton from him. Um, You know, he's an okay passer, but I think he defaults to either quick passes on the perimeter or just plays one-on-one so much that uh, he's not putting pressure on the rim and making reads when he gets to the second level of the defense. So a little bit of an unknown in that regard. He also has a really high turnover rate in AAU and, and that's, concerning to a lot of people Um, it's something that can be worked through from his age but again it's going to come down to expectations are are we hoping that he comes in and makes any type of an impact in year one or is he going to pick his spots play six to eight minutes a night really be brought along slowly to develop and not have any poor habits when he hits the NBA because right now he is very raw. He got away with the bad habits in high school because he was just that much more athletic than, than anybody he went against. He can fill it up scoring wise. Uh, while we nitpick parts of his game that aren't polished right now. He's a teenager that didn't play in college and he has a lot of those natural traits you look for. 6'11 wingspan, huge upside as an athlete and a lot of scoring potential. So uh, we have Shaden Sharp in that five to seven range. Um, I'd recommend trying to you know, spend a little bit more time diving into the film for those of you that are able to find it because it's easy to get blinded by the YouTube highlights. And, and I appreciate the, the question there from Dr. MD, but um, do the research for yourself too. Like there are ways to find these games and, and be available and, and try to pick apart what you see from, from watching full game film. I, I think highlights and, and clips are always going to be a little bit to see, right? Thunder Moneyball. I think this is going to be a question about the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, It's implied in the question and in the name, but not necessarily outright said. How do you feel about pairing Chet Holmgren and Jeremy Sohan together? With Holmgren still to put on some weight, I like the combination where they can rest him on ball sometimes and interchange between guarding fours and fives. Uh, This is a, a really good question because Chet has been an obvious target for Oklahoma City at two. And then Sohan might be available at 12. Oklahoma City needs frontcourt guys and talent. I think both are better at the four while they can play the five. What does that tell me about their fit next to each other? I love the pairing for closing lineups. I love the pairing for uh, playoff situations. But I think if that's who you're relying on for a full 82-game season, you're going to wear down a little bit. You're not going to have enough rim protection where that really matters in the regular season. Um, And and it's cookie cutter basketball, right? Teams aren't trying to find every single way to exploit your defense. Um, They're just, they're playing basketball in ways that they are a little bit easier to get through and and not as tailored to their opponent. So uh, I I think Oklahoma city needs another bigger body. I also think in the short term, Chet is going to be best, best next to another five. That doesn't mean Oklahoma City shouldn't strongly consider drafting both because if Chet puts on that weight and then turns into that guy that can be more of a five, I think the pairing between those two is dynamic. Um, I think both will be able to shoot okay. Sohan's a little farther away than Chet is right now. I think Sohan will be able to shoot okay. That's one of the reasons why we have a lottery grade on him. Big fan. Uh, I think that would be an awesome haul for Oklahoma City if they can pull both guys off. It picks two and 12 D pack. pack. there, uh, best prospects in the five through 15 range who are best defending one-on-one. Um, I'm gonna go Johnny Davis, Johnny Davis from Wisconsin. Um, his energy and how much he took pride in guarding on the defensive end, despite carrying a heavy offensive load for Wisconsin, really impressive to us. I think that, when that burden gets lifted off of his shoulders more in the NBA, he's going to be really, really effective. You know, Deepak had a, a follow up question here about guarding one through four and not just one on one. That's Sohan. He's really the only guy I think that's going to be switchable one through four. Um, and Chet is too, but ideally, you want Chet as a, as a help defender because he's such a good shot blocker and somebody whose length covers a ton of ground. That's valuable off ball, not necessarily always switching on ball. Uh, I think Sohan is the right combination of physicality, of quickness, of of length. Uh, He fits that really well to me. Like Dyson Daniels deserves a shout out in this question as well, but I think the bigger wings might give him a little bit more trouble. So Sohan is is our guy there. Oh, I'm going to enjoy this one here. Dumb Sixers fan. Dumb Sixers fan. Realistic floor and ceiling for Bryce McGowan's. I think floor and ceiling questions are oftentimes sugar-coated and not the true floor or ceiling, right? Like the floor is that he's out of the league and it's actually a very real possibility for McGowan's he's young, but you can't just bank on a guy getting better because he's young and you like flashes that you've seen. If McGowan's never gains weight, if he doesn't shoot it effectively from three, if he's just as bad on D in the future as he is now, because believe me, he's really bad. he's not going to be able to crack an NBA rotation. But I think his ceiling is high enough to consider him for a first round grade, particularly if you feel comfortable that he'll add strength and and weight to his frame, that he'll be able to hone in the defense a little bit more when he's not surrounded by a a sad sack group of Cornhuskers. And if the shot falls. So the ceiling to me is actually kind of like a Jordan Clarkson-ish microwave scorer, whether that's off the bench or a starting unit. But somebody who attacks the rim really well, uses his length, and, and gets to the free throw line. That's my favorite favorite trait for McGowan's is that he's fearless and he really, really attacks. All right, talk T-Wolves. Oh, interesting one here. How good will Alondas Williams be if he shoots that three-point shot at around league average in the NBA? All right, I, I got a confession to make, folks. I'm not a big Alondas guy. I think he's a lot more flash and like highlight playmaking than he is actual substance to his game. Um, he doesn't put enough pressure directly on the rim as a driver. For me, the passes are great, but a lot of them come from one dribble inside the three point line and proactive kick. That only works. If you're going to be a major threat to score at the basket and his finishing numbers are solid, but I think if you play him in the pick and roll teams, just go underneath him. Uh, the the shot the fact that it hasn't come along by now is more of a concern to me than anything that we'll see mechanically. He's an older entrant into this draft, had a, a strange path to get here with multiple different schools, going JUCO to Oklahoma, and he wasn't great at Oklahoma, and then yeah, here to Wake Forest where he had a really good year. So I have Alanda's outside my top fifty. Like if the shot comes along, he's a role player somewhere in the league, but. He's just like a better defensive version of Jordan Hall in that regard. Um, I'd rather bet on Jordan Hall. I have a higher grade for Hall than I do for Alondas right now. Hall's younger. Uh, he's definitely not as good of a, a defender right now, but he's bigger. He's longer. Same type of playmaking IQ and much more polished shot making. So I would rather have the shooting than the defensive impact. And, and part of that's because I, I don't think Alondas is a lockdown guy. He's solid. Um, but uh, I'd go with Hall over Alondez right now. And that's a controversial opinion in in some circles, but yeah, I I don't know if Alondez is going to crack our top 50. Jump stop. Who are our top three international players? I never know how to answer these questions because who are we counting in this? Are they guys who played in college? Do they count? Like is Benedict Matherin included in the conversation. What about Jeremy Sohan? You Dyson know, Daniels played in the G League Ignite, Jan Montero with Overtime Elite. Like, those are, are guys that they are international prospects. They just, they didn't, they're not coming to the draft directly from playing overseas. Um, so we'll stick with that stricter confine, right? The guys that played overseas last year and might be, uh, might be a little bit farther out of the radars from a lot of people who watch college hoops. Usman Jang is tops on our board right now. Uh, have him as a mid to late kind of teens type of guy there. Anywhere from like the 12 to 20 range would be comfortable for him. Got a lot better as the season went on. High upside swing because of his natural frame, playmaking skills, and and the hope in in the shot. Uh, it's nowhere near where it needs to be right now, but. If you believe that he can be better than 27% from three as he's been each of the last two seasons, then Jang can be a really, really valuable role player. I have a little bit of a Nick Batumish comp for him. Nikola Jovic is second there, followed closely by Gabriel Procida from Italy. Uh, Jovic started the year top five on our board, drastically, drastically fell. Uh, we'll talk about that. Actually, I think there's another question that, that hints to, to him. So we'll, we'll dive into Jovic in a second here. Prochita is a little bit later of a riser on a lot of draft boards. Uh, I think that he's going to be worthwhile to be a draft and stash guy in the first round. Ismail Kamigate right outside this range. I think Ty goes to the non big and that's where Prochita comes in really athletic three and D type of prospect shoots the ball. Well, good self creator in small doses. I, I think that he is that the high floor of being a really good role player and a little bit more of a ceiling that people will give him credit for but definitely not ready from day one. The last question and this is the one we'll we'll refer to here with Jovich. Um, Jam Hines, what prospect has done the most this year to su- significantly change your evaluation of that? If we're talking about a negative kind of change throughout the cycle, then Jovich has to be the guy because he we came in with sky-high expectations after what we saw in the FIBA U-19 World Cup last summer. The defense just harms everything. He doesn't have a natural spot to guard. The, the tools aren't there for him to improve drastically to the point where he would be an above-average defender. And quite frankly, I just I think he gets played off of the floor in the playoffs. So uh, the best role for him is really going to just find somebody to guard against specific teams that have a liability on the floor. And that's not valuable in playoff basketball. I love the offensive skill set, the size, the passing, the shooting upside, really, really creative in the open floor. I'm so drawn to that. But if he can only be on the floor for 15 to 20 minutes a night, that puts a, a major ceiling on where you try to draft him. So uh, I have dropped Jovich down to the 20s on our draft board and, and think that even then, it's going to take the right type of defensive infrastructure to, to make him a fit. So, that, the defensive end has really changed our evaluation from sky high into the offensive skill to kind of worry about how it'll turn out. Who has changed for the positive, though? Because we want to leave this on a really positive note. Johnny Davis from Wisconsin, um, kind of underlooked, excuse me, overlooked um, and undervalued. As we get closer to the draft here, but he went from a guy that we just didn't see much in after his freshman year to a hyper, hyper competitive combo guard who put together an impressive statistical season, scored the ball, carried Wisconsin to the NCAA tournament and has unbelievable defensive upside. I like Davis, the person a lot. That's what's impressed me. The ability to take 20 shots a night for Wisconsin and still guard the other team's best player, chase them around screens, be engaged on that end of the floor. The willingness to play through being banged up in the NCAA tournament and find an extra gear against Colgate to go out there and win that game in the second half. Um, he's got that toughness that really it's those intangibles that separate a lot of guys who are similarly talented. I think Davis has it. He's by, by no means the most talented kind of guard in this lottery conversation. But if we're going to bet on one guy based on the ancillary skills or the traits that they bring to the table, I think Davis has gone a long way in impressing us. And that has changed our evaluation of him as much as the skills or the things that we initially saw that we didn't love on the offensive end. Well, folks, that's it here for our uh, our mailbag part of the episode. As always, thank you for tuning in here to the Box and One podcast. Appreciate all the listeners for their questions this week. We'll uh, look forward to doing another mailbag maybe as we get real close to the draft, if not immediately after, but for now, find us on our Substack channel, find us on Twitter at the box and one underscore and all of our stuff, our uh, YouTube scouting reports and mock drafts over on YouTube at my name, Adam Spinella from coach spins signing off here. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. What? <coughs>